help the customers catch this using their internal uh, incident uh, uh, monitoring, uh, uh, traffic monitoring uh, tools? Yes. We we didn't get into that a ton in the story because it's already a very long story, as you mentioned. But there were cases where the downstream victims did find it. However, one interesting component to this was that the legal service agreements that these uh, end clients sign with their MSPs, a lot of times it gives right to investigation to the MSP first. So even if you yourself believe you're breached, you can't hire a third party to look into it. You need to first go to your MSP for them to investigate it. Wow. So uh, So the incentives are all kind of a little off. If if you're listening to this, I'm guessing there are are dozens of in-house counsel saying, uh, you know, I better go back and review my contracts because you're right. Uh, You could... Welcome to episode 270 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and uh, as is usual, uh, the views expressed here are disclaimed by our firms, our institutions, our clients, our uh, friends, uh, acquaintances, former friends who have uh, ceased to talk to us since they listened to the last podcast, uh, uh, and uh, our family. Uh, um, the interview, we're going to do an interview today with Chris Bing, who's a cybersecurity reporter at uh, Reuters, was at CyberScoop, if I remember right. Uh, uh, and he was on the team that produced a couple of big reports on China and Russia that are coming up. So uh, welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. And uh, we're going to be joined by two Culper partners uh, uh in fact, the only two Culper partners, as far <laughs> as I know, David Chris and Nate Jones, formerly with uh, the uh, uh, Justice Department and the National Security Council. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you. And by Jordan Cannon, uh, a summer associate in our Washington office uh, and uh, a longtime listener, first time uh, contributor. Uh, so it's great to have you, Jordan. Thank you. All right. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, host of today's program and chief troublemaker. Uh, there are a lot of really meaty stories, so we won't do as many, but uh, uh, I'd like to uh, dig into them. Uh, with the president uh, uh, talking to uh, President Xi, uh, coming up with a kind of uh, stopgap resolution to, or at least uh, uh, truce in the trade war, uh, it's important to start talking about how the trade war is actually working out. Uh, And Nate, there's been a lot of stories about this, and I thought a good one was the one about uh, the chip industry. Did you follow that? Yeah, I did. Um, and it is. It's it's really interesting. And actually, the first sort of group of stories, as you said, relate directly to the, the so-called uh, Trump ban on Huawei that was issued back in May. And I think to understand what's going on, it's helpful to have a little bit of background. Um, as you sort of alluded to, there are three things going on with China. There's the wider trade war, which extends far beyond technology. You have this this bigger competition for technological superiority and, and winning the races on AI and 5G and some of these emerging technologies. And then you have uh, these narrower, more specific concerns about the use of Huawei equipment and other uh, Chinese-made equipment uh, in in our communications networks. And the Trump EO, at least on its face, was principally about that last one. Mm-hmm. And it, two things, right? It banned uh, U.S. companies from purchasing Huawei equipment and using it in, in their networks. And it also banned them from selling things to Huawei. 
And, and that first part about banning the purchase of Huawei equipment is really, uh, I think the effect of it is limited to securing the network that exists um, within the United States and that is owned by US-based companies primarily. But that only gets you so far in, in modern communications, right, when it comes to security. And the Trump administration has long rightly been worried about what is going on in the rest of the world and where else is Huawei selling their stuff. And they remember they lost the fight to get others to join them in banning Huawei. And I think that second part of the EO, banning U.S. companies from selling to Huawei, was at least in part intended to affect the the sale of Huawei equipment to other uh, countries. And it, it principally does so by making Huawei less competitive. If you look at what China has done in the tech industry, they have, have been pretty successful on several fronts. And there have been a couple of limitations to that, which has forced them to allow US tech companies into their market. And those two limitations or at least two of them have been chips and they've been operating systems. It's a nut that China hasn't really cracked yet. And so the first story about you know US tech companies grumbling about the impact of this ban on their sales, I think is real. Um, the question is uh, more, I think, whether it's a short-term or a long-term impact on their sales, because that will, I think, depend on whether or not China and Huawei can come up with an alternative uh, to these chips. If it can't, um, you may see some of these governments move further and further away from Huawei products and buy others that will contain U.S. chips. And so, uh, in theory, at least, it could have have a minimal long-term impact, um, but there's no question there's a short-term impact. Part of this is... Chinese companies just saying, we don't want to buy American chips because we don't think they're a reliable uh, supplier, which um, is not a, a completely unreasonable uh, view given uh, uh, what the U.S. government has done. And this ties into the second story the question, where did uh, they go? Right. That, that, that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, this is a, 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 a Wall Street Journal article by Kate O'Keefe that was yeah. – you know, it, it's like the Rosetta Stone to the last – 18 months of policy-making debates uh, uh, where we saw a big debate uh, as CFIUS was being redone um, over whether it could cover joint ventures in foreign countries and that produced a bitter and the only really successful lobbying campaign on the part of U.S. industry uh, uh, trying to stop that from, from happening. Uh, and then recently there was an order saying that certain companies uh, like Sujan were going to be uh, improper uh, recipients of U.S. tech. Um, it wasn't clear, you know, why the U.S. government suddenly decided to go after some companies for their ties to the uh, uh, P uh, People's Liberation Army. And now it turns out that that all of that stuff was pulled together by a dispute the U.S. government was having under the covers with AMD over AMD's effort to get healthy financially by. Uh, jumping into bed with a bunch of Chinese companies and the Chinese government. 
Yeah. And, and, and I think that this story really goes to the heart of, of what effect and how effective basically that Trump EO would be on, on um, you know, diminishing Huawei in the eyes of the rest of the world. Because, uh, you know, the story, as you, you alluded to, is, uh, you know, AMD was in some financial trouble a few years ago. And they turned things around in part by signing a lucrative licensing deal with China and selling a large stake in two of their um, semiconductor factories in China. And what the article suggests is that um, AMD may have given the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, to China by giving them a capability to make the chip, the kinds of chips they would need to compete on the global market. These are the x86 chips that Intel makes and that AMD has been chasing Intel for 30 years, making uh, um, versions of them uh, recently actually kind of passed Intel in terms of the size of their uh, their chips. They're down to, I don't know, six nanometers, something like that uh, in manufacturing, which is an impressive uh, leapfrogging of Intel, which is still struggling around nine or ten. Um, so uh, AMD is suddenly looking good by American terms, uh, but over the last two or three years, it's been locked in a bitter fight with DOD over uh, how much technology it can transfer. Uh, they insist uh, uh, point blank that they have always complied with U.S. export control laws, and there's some suggestion from the DOD sources that uh, they did, but they shouldn't. You know, the, the law should not have allowed them to do what they did, which is to set up two joint ventures, one dominated by AMD and one dominated by the Chinese uh, uh, company they were doing business with, and the chip. Uh, the company that was do- the JV that was dominated by AMD m- manufactured the chips, but the JV that was um, dominated by the Chinese was thinking of ways to use them, for example, to build supercomputers. Yeah, and you know, it, again, it really goes to the heart of of what the effect of this Trump EO would be. I think you know, it's one of the biggest leverage points it seems that they have against Huawei in this battle. I don't think that this is just the executive order. There there are three or four things going on here. There's CFIUS, which has now been dramatically expanded, uh, but not enough to cover the joint venture. And there's export controls. And some of the sanctions on Huawei, uh, you know, not selling to Huawei were not derived from the executive order, but from a determination that they'd violated export control rules. Um, And then uh, there's an executive order that they're talking about, which is still kicking around, that would, or maybe they'll do it under the executive order uh, that they've already put in place, that says even the people like Nokia who are supplying uh, technology that uh, competes with Huawei are going to uh, uh, have to make their 5G equipment outside of China. Yeah, and because you were already seeing the the location of the manufacturing being used to circumvent some of the restrictions that were placed um, on companies in the EO, but I think you're right. This is about more than just the EO. It's um, you know, as the story alludes to, it's also about you know the race to to um, you know be the first to to uh, develop certain supercomputers and other technological advancements. 
and I do think it's about trying to to get a leg up on you know Chinese technology companies by limiting the availability of critical pieces of, of this technological puzzle. But it is, it is a, I think, important to understanding what the long-term economic impact is going to be for the U.S. Because if China cracks this nut, um, not only will they be able to, you know, move ahead uh, with without any impediments, but it also um, speaks to potentially the inevitability of some of the harm to the U.S. industry here. Whether Trump had issued this EO or not. Once they develop the technology to develop to produce these kinds of chips, they will have no need for U.S. manufacturers. And as we've seen for the, from them in almost every other area of technology, once they have the ability to do it themselves, they largely push American competitors out of their market. And so, you know, it is something that I think the rest of the industry should be worried about with AMD. And and could could pretend pretend you know long term challenges for them in the Chinese market. Yep, I, I there's there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, there's that saying: if you're going to shoot at a king, you better not miss. Uh, uh, and I think that's the case with uh, uh, the trade war. It was was coming was being fought by one side uh, by the Chinese side for 15 years uh, uh, and when uh, Trump came in and the US woke up and decided it was going to fight back uh, the, I it's hard to argue with that decision um, but uh, if you're going to do that you'd better damn well win. And um, it's not clear that uh, um, uh, we are going to win this. Uh, and uh, it'll be a, uh, a long-term struggle no matter what. Well, let me, let, let's me let take a quick look at what the Chinese are doing in cyberspace uh, with the authorities they have. Uh, 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 I'm going to ask Jordan to talk a little bit about this story, because if you thought Russian interference with elections in the U.S. and uh, uh, Britain and elsewhere was a problem. Uh, you really ain't seen nothing yet until the Chinese bring to bear their massive numbers. Jordan? Uh, so that's exactly right, Stuart. So um, what this story is about is um, the first time, uh, the first con confirmed report of China using uh, Russia-style influence tactics um, online in Taiwan. So basically the story is um, – this candidate, uh, Han Guoyu, uh, who was running for mayor in Kaohsiung, um, was considered a, an, a long shot candidate um, and somehow rose out of nowhere to prominence. And not only did he win uh, the mayor mayoral race in Kaohsiung, but now he's actually eyeing the presidency. Um, so basically what happened was some PRC uh, individuals created uh, Facebook groups, uh, much as much like happened during the 2016 um, U.S. presidential elections. Um, they created these groups um, and posed as Taiwanese people, um, and then eventually um, created these groups to disseminate fake news um, and to um, and to boost maybe real news. Right? That this this is an enormous group. Mm. Uh, uh, the the numbers uh, are striking. Correct. So they um, they boosted real news. They paid for this um, uh, for Han Guoyu's um, news stories to be promoted on Facebook. Um, something to note is that in Taiwan, three fourths of the population use Facebook. So often, um, whoever has the largest online presence within Taiwan, um, whatever candidate has the largest online presence, usually that translates into success at the ballot box. And so he basically came out of nowhere. And what's really remarkable is that uh, Kaohsiung was originally um, considered to be um, a really a stronghold of uh, the DPP. And he came from the other party and was able to win. 
Um, so so this, this, the DPP is the more independence-minded. Uh, correct. And the, uh, uh, ironically, okay. the party of the Kuomintang, uh, the uh, uh, the guys who fought with the communists for 15 or 20 years in a civil war and then fled to Taiwan, they are now the more pro-China. Exactly. And, and that's precisely that's why he received uh, the support from um, from China, uh, Chinese operations, because he's considered to be the most pro-China candidate in the race. I was kind of surprised. I didn't see a lot about Facebook taking this stuff down for uh, inauthenticity. Uh, 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 maybe they did not ask Facebook for a lot of comments, but I was kind of surprised given how aggressive they've been about the Russians that uh, we didn't see the same uh, apparent aggressiveness uh, out of Facebook. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see any reports of that either. I do know that the um, Chun Chermai, who was the candidate running against Han Guoyu, um, did try to uh, sue some of the most prolific posters of fake news, um, but I didn't see uh, the result of that. Well, uh, you know, probably the uh, Streisand effect took hold, and uh, <laughs> that's why he lost. Uh, uh, okay, and uh, I was going to say this. It's we're doing this week in APT 10 because uh, uh, this is one of the more sophisticated Chinese uh, hacking gangs. Uh, uh, there's a story out of the uh, Wall Street Journal again about uh, what they say is APT 10 breaking into all of the world's major telecom carriers just to target a handful of people to figure out uh, just collect their metadata, not their calls, but to know what their location is and uh, uh, who they're communicating with. And uh, Nate, uh, I, I, I should tell you that um, uh, Chris Bing uh, said to me when I told him I thought this was uh, APT10, he said, oh, maybe. Um, so I'm going to let him uh, uh, speak. But uh, anything interesting other than the fact that they made this massive effort to pursue perhaps 20 people? It is surprising. You know, it's it's reportedly more than a dozen telecom firms in over 30 countries. At least in some cases, they got pretty deep inside them, compromising their entire active directories and basically giving them free reign to do what they wanted in their system. You know, the impact is not that surprising. I mean, you know, They've, we've seen them go after, you know, things like OPM in the U.S. in part in a in an effort to uh, bolster their intelligence activities and their counterintelligence activities, presumably. And I assume that's what this is about. But I would be surprised if they didn't go beyond that because there would, I would think, be quite a bit of other interesting information in this this trove of data that they had access to. Yeah, I, I, what I thought was interesting is, uh, first, these guys are good. Uh, they got in. They have gotten past the point of just uh, uh, smashing in the window and grabbing whatever they could. Uh, uh, now they're in for the long haul and uh, uh, trying to use their admin uh, privileges to pursue uh, relatively granular uh, uh, intelligence objectives. Uh, but uh, let me ask Chris, uh, you weren't sure it was APT-10. Uh, uh, how come? Yeah, so I mean, there's two hacking groups that are predominantly associated with the Ministry of State Security. The first is APT-10, which the Justice Department indicted two members of last December. And then there's APT-31. Um, based on the sources that I've spoken to in the research community, APT-10 kind of went dark after those indictments. Right. And 31 is still active. And 31 is uh, different people, different operators, different tools and tactics and procedures. 
this gets mm-hmm. kind of into the minutia of like tracking these different hacking groups, but uh, so they think the tactics here looked at least as much like APT thirty one. Yeah, that's right. Which is a newer group, and uh, we don't know their their names yet. Okay, or their girlfriend's names, or their girlfriend's uh, names. Yeah. Or anything else. Uh, is that enough, China? Uh, let's uh, let's let's talk about uh, uh, you know uh, a, a scandal that now seems kind of. Came. Uh, uh, the Chinese are getting American metadata, but apparently NSA can't, uh, or at least it can't get it in a format it uh, wants. David, uh, uh, what's the latest there? Yeah, so uh, NSA is having a lot of problems with the providers, the telecom providers, in connection with the call detail records program that was enshrined by the 2015 USA Freedom Act. Uh, the background on this is, of course, right after 9-11, the NSA started collecting in bulk telephony metadata, gathering up a lot of uh, records of who was calling whom, not the contents of the calls, but just who was calling whom, and, and storing it in a giant repository at NSA and then occasionally querying that database when they had a, a lead on a particular number being used by a terrorist. Then came Snowden in 2013, revealing that program, and after roughly two years of Sturmendrang, there was in 2015 a legislative uh, enactment, the USA Freedom Act, that outlawed bulk collection and instead set up this far more complex federated system in which NSA would sort of send data collection and query requests to each individual phone company on a sort of iterative basis in order to do the contact chaining that it previously had done with the bulk collected data. This was basically to satisfy the congressional critics who insisted that that the government getting data, even if they never looked at it, about Americans that weren't under suspicion was a violation of all that we hold dear and the Fourth Amendment too. Um, And those guys essentially forced this revision of the program through Congress. That's right. The the key innovation in the 2015 law was that instead of NSA holding all the data from the participating phone companies in one big database at Fort Meade, uh, the data would instead remain with the phone companies, necessitating the construction of several pipes between NSA and each of the providers and this iterative federated process, which is just much more complicated. And what turns out to have happened is that the thing just crashed and burned. Uh, In the summer of 2016, NSA revealed that due to what seemed to be mistakes by the providers, uh, they were getting bad data and they decided to just delete everything that they had collected up until then under the new law. And then they started uh, collecting more and they got more bad data. Is that right? You know, we heard various things from congressional overseers about how they had shut down the program altogether. They tried to restart it. And now we have evidence that they encountered a second catastrophe. Uh, and in both cases, it does seem to have been a problem on the provider side. That is, this is not NSA trying to get more that it's entitled to. This is NSA saying, wait a minute, we think you've sent us more than we asked for, more than we're entitled to. Please look into it. And then the provider's finding out that there there is a problem. So the interesting question now is this this program, this the legal authorization for this program that was adopted by the Freedom Act will expire. It will sunset unless renewed in December of this year, 2019. And the signals we're getting as to whether the executive branch is even going to seek renewal 
I think are potentially a little mixed. You do not see overwhelming enthusiasm for the program from General Nakasone or from the Bureau uh, in public statements. Uh, on the other hand, John Bolton is in the White House, and he is pretty aggressive on these things coming out of the George W. Bush school of thought, uh, which is that you know you you always want the most you can get. So there may be some interesting internal and external political issues as we come towards mid-December when the authority will go away unless Congress renews it. And the, and the nice question is, will the administration push for it at all or aggressively between now and then? Yeah. Well, well and, and I'd like to know whether all those people who said we've got to turn this into a program in which the data stays with the private sector and we'll rely on the private sector to respond to uh, uh, court orders when they're going to apologize for all of these mistakes, because uh, this is down to them, not to NSA. You let me know, Stuart, when you receive that apology. I, mean, <laughs> I, I think the, the and I wrote about this when they had their first catastrophe in the summer of 16. You know, I think the lesson here in a way is there are reasonable arguments about how you balance security and privacy. And it's, a, you know, sort of there's a continuum there. But one of the problems that can emerge when you start making things both legally and technically more and more complicated in order to find a compromise position is you can end up tying yourself up in knots and encouraging both over-collection and under-collection as a result of the complexity. And there may be cases, and this may be one of them, in which the right answer is either to you know go fish or fowl, but uh, not try to be in the middle, because when you end up in the middle, you just have a giant mess. Yeah. Uh, when the lawyers say, why don't we leave it to the engineers? They're <laughs> already screwing up. Uh, let me uh, let me quickly, uh, speaking of screw ups, turn uh, to my favorite topic, uh, which is Silicon Valley censorship. Uh, uh, and, you know, we've heard a lot from people who think that uh, uh, all we need is more competition in Silicon Valley in these platforms and they won't go around uh, censoring uh, um, uh, views that are not expressible in uh, um, uh, Silicon Valley uh, free lunchrooms. Uh, um, but the latest news actually undercuts that. Um, uh, the uh, you remember there was this uh, uh, fuss over uh, a video done by uh, Project Veritas uh, uh, in uh, uh, exposing uh, Google and I think suppression of um, a uh, uh, an abortion group uh, and uh, uh, the uh, the Veritas had a uh, a Google employee come on uh, with a disguised voice and talk about the ways in which uh, uh, Google YouTube was suppressing uh, speech. Uh, Google took it down on the ground that it um, violated the privacy of somebody at Google um, and then the distant number two competitor of uh, YouTube, Vimeo, um, uh, instead of saying what an opportunity to get more uh, viewers, said we're going to take it down too. They uh, didn't use privacy. Uh, they said it was defamatory or uh, uh, words to that effect, although 
it's not clear exactly uh, how it was defamatory. Uh, but it really does raise the question whether Silicon Valley is so convinced of these of its views that no matter how much competition there is, they're not going to compete to uh, uh, to serve uh, people who uh, um, think abortion is a bad idea. Uh, same thing happened uh, um, when Twitter shut down uh, the same uh, uh, video. There was a, an effort to get people to move to some other um, tweeting service like Parley, I think it was, uh, or Gab. Uh, and uh, one of the people who was prominent on Parley said that uh, he'd been told that Apple had refused had, – had said it was going to ban the app if it, the app uh, users uh, – the, the, uh, the management for the app didn't shut down certain users of – uh, the app for uh, making public pronouncements. Uh, again, suggesting that even if there's somebody who's willing to compete and provide a platform for conservatives, uh, there are multiple ways in which Silicon Valley is going to uh, say, no, your speech is just not acceptable. Nate, I know you don't agree, so tell me why. Well, I actually do agree with you on, on some level on this one, Stuart. I think it would be great to have a competitor to some of these companies, in part because I think it would be fascinating to see what giving conservatives a fair shake on that platform actually looks like. And you know, I think it will be hard for them to achieve that, um, among other things, in a world where you as a tech company increasingly own what's happening on your platform, whether that's social media platform or the app store um, that you operate, it's, it's going to be hard for them to break in when they don't abide by certain you know, codes of conduct on their platform. And I think that there's been a lot of obfuscation, in my opinion, by conservatives about what's, what's going on and, and what the nature of this bias is and, and how it's being you know, enforced. And but I think the most interesting thing to see them grapple with will be these codes of conduct and what would the code of conduct on these platforms look like when it comes to, you know, promoting violence, um, hate speech, those kinds of things, uh, because, you know, it's it's distasteful content. It's something that, you know, large swaths of the public don't like to see and don't agree with. And, and in some cases actually results in concrete harms to people. And if they're disproportionately impacted by those types of prohibitions, that, in my opinion, is not bias. It's just that they don't like the rules that they're supposed to abide by on there. I hear you on that. That is, I think, the standard uh, uh, defense of the uh, platforms. But, yeah. you know, when when different uh, platforms have different reasons uh, but came to the, come to the same conclusion, you're out, screw you. Um, you know, it's a violation of privacy. No, I mean it's defamatory. Uh, no, it's uh, it, um, in the case of the abortion group, uh, they're saying things that aren't true because they say, uh, you know, that uh, uh, it results in deaths. And those aren't deaths. Those are fetuses. Uh, I, and, and the number of objections to the speech gives you a feel for the possibility that maybe none of them are true and it's just that they don't like the speech. Or, or all of them are true in some cases. Um, but, you know, that that is, I, I guess, the point that I would make is look at the content, look at the reasons that are being given. If they don't think that the content 
fits any or all of the justifications, then make that argument and convince people. I haven't seen them succeed on that front. And if they have a problem with the rules in the first place, because they disproportionately impact some conservative voices on these platforms, then go out and say that. Say that these companies should not be prohibiting content that promotes violence, if that's your view. And I'm not saying your view, but I'm saying that those uh, some others are complaining about this and they won't take on the actual codes of conduct. And I think that it is a fair question, you know, but when you don't have this space regulated in any way and you leave it up to these companies and the free market to determine these things, you either have to convince them to change their standards or you have to convince them to collectively adopt um, particular applications of that. And that's really hard to do. I'm sure there is a country and Western song that uh, uh, contains the lyrics, I hate you, I need you, I hate that I need you. Uh, but that is, the, that is the Silicon Valley song for some conservatives. It's been really interesting. Reddit's most popular forum probably is the Donald, where Trump fans uh, gather. Uh, Twitter's most popular account or close to most popular account, certainly the one that gets the most attention, is Donald Trump's. Uh, and so this is for companies that uh, or organizations that don't have that much revenue, banning people uh, no matter that the rules could uh, be viewed as uh, uh, having been violated is not really an option. And what's interesting is that this week, Two of those uh, uh, institutions, Reddit and Twitter, uh, found a way to say, we we hate you, but we need you, and we hate that we need you, but you can stick around. Uh, we're just going to show that we hate you. In the case of the Reddit forum, you have to now click through something that says, there might be something really dangerous on the other side of the screen. Oh, God. <laughs> and that's the forum uh, for Donald Trump fans. Uh, apparently, there had been some... Uh, uh, suggestions of violence aimed at the state police in Oregon who were tracking down fleeing uh, a GOP uh, senators who didn't want to vote on a climate change bill. But according to the administrators, no one had complained to them. The complaints went straight to Reddit management, which said, since there are these these uh, threats, we're going to quarantine the organization. Uh, and then Twitter now says if public leaders who are uh, kind of inherently newsworthy uh, uh, break our rules, we're going to put a little advisory on it to say, you know, uh, uh, we're just as woke as everybody else and we hate these guys too, but uh, we need them. So, Stuart, can I make a, a local book endorsement? We, we have no financial interest in this. Yes, but, uh, please do. There's a wonderful Seattle author by the name of Neil Stevenson. He writes speculative He's great. Stuff. Yes, of course. <laughs> So his latest book is called Fall, F-A-L-L, -L, and I'm reading it now. And it is, a, in a sense, a, a speculation on the rise of fake news to the point where there is so much misinformation on the Internet that nobody knows anything about what is true. And massive segments of America actually still believe that Moab, Utah was nuked even though it actually wasn't. And the world that this creates and the way in which people adapt and evolve and, and end up buying high-priced editors to filter all of the information that they receive and the way it divides America. So if you want a sort of a semi-dystopian, maybe even fully dystopian speculation on where we're headed, uh, I recommend Neil Stevenson. So Neil, Neil Stevenson is a wonderful, he's a little like Tom Wolfe. He is great yeah. about narrative propulsion. It's just that... It, 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 his narrative propulsion 
half the time ends up nowhere. Uh, and I've heard that that this book gets a little kind of weird about halfway through and, and, and it becomes a second and very different book. Uh, you have not gotten to that part, I guess. I'm not that far yet, but the, the last one I read, Seven Eves, spanned a period of several thousand years. <laughs> so it wouldn't surprise me if what you say is true, but I, I do recommend it for those who like that sort of thing. It's like Tom Wolfe. You you, you, you're there for the ride. Saddle up and, 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 and enjoy it. Don't expect it to uh, resolve in a satisfying way. And, and you You'll have a good time. Uh, last uh, point, because we're way over time. Uh, breaking news from 1993: the administration is considering uh, recommending um, a legislation, or maybe just a, a kind of white paper on the problem of going dark uh, due to encryption uh, of communications inside and outside the U.S. Uh, uh, David, you've you've lived this almost as long as I have. Uh, uh, any any thoughts on this story? Well, uh, in the limited time we've got available, I guess I'll just make two points. First, the Obama administration took a look at this. And if you look at their options paper that leaked, the range of options was essentially from do nothing to do a tiny little bit. Uh, and essentially nothing came out of it. We don't know what, if anything, the Trump administration is going to do. But I think the really interesting long-term trend here is that there are many indications that non-U.S. authorities in the Western world, Europe and Australia, are becoming more aggressive in enacting authority to push for extraordinary access to encrypted comms. And over the next couple of years, we may find ourselves in a very, very unfamiliar situation in which European and Australian authorities have and start using that authority in a way that leaves U.S. authorities behind. So this asymmetry between U.S. and the rest of the world, which everybody thinks of as favoring U.S. law enforcement and national security authorities, may be reversing. Um, and if so, that's going to be a very unusual state of affairs and, and potentially have some ripple effects that will be worth noting. I, li I look forward to all the industry spokesmen uh, and uh, uh, civil society advocates who say about GDPR and its imposition on U.S. companies uh, uh, without any say on the part of the U.S. government uh, who've been saying, yeah, well, that's international law for you. Geez, that's, that sucks to be you. I'm uh, uh, going to have to eat all of those words when the same countries start imposing uh, uh, encryption uh, uh, backdoor requirements. Uh, uh, yeah, I think you're right. And my guess is if, if the administration just put out the white paper they're talking about or the, the, the principles they're talking about instead of a proposal for legislation, which ain't going anywhere anyway, um, that it would be viewed as providing comfort to uh, governments like Australia or Germany or the UK or France, so you name it, uh, right. who want to do this, uh, who will say, see, even the US government agrees with us uh, and who will shake off the suggestions that what they're doing is hostile to, uh, to US lawmakers. So let me stop for a minute. And uh, uh, talk to turn to Chris Bing. Chris, you've got a great couple of stories uh, uh, out here. One of them is a deep dive on the AP, what was for sure APT 10, uh, uh, which 
had discovered uh, the clever tactic uh, not of directly trying to compromise people who had uh, pretty good cybersecurity, but of compromising their service providers. Uh, and uh, um, they turned that from an insight into a massive campaign. Um, we saw this – well, this was discussed in the indictment of the two guys uh, uh, from APT10 that were indicted, but you've gotten – actual names and stories. Uh, uh, why don't you tell me what you were able to find out? So I guess it was last year before a number of these larger announcements and the DOJ indictments against this particular Chinese hacking group that I began hearing from sources of mine about this really successful Chinese hacking operation that was targeting these kind of middleman IT companies, companies that do data services, data storage for Fortune 500 companies and also government agencies all around the world. And what they said was that this was a big deal. Uh, the scale of damage was hard to comprehend because they had hacked – they had successfully hacked so many of these managed service providers. But basically, they had access or potential access to every one of their customers. That's right. Potential access. And the thing is that it's very hard to track where the hackers are inside a compromised network when it looks like it's coming from someone that's supposed to be working with you, like your managed service right. provider. You know, It looks like approved access. They're logging into your system to do normal things. You well, might you give them admin access to this stuff because they are administering it. That's exactly right. Um, um, and so we were really interested in this, I would say, for about the last year, um, and we're tracking it actively, just trying to learn who was impacted, what was the impact here, how was the government tracking it, how large was the scale, what governments around the world were also concerned about this. And ultimately, what we found out is some of the largest managed service providers in the world were, were, were compromised by the Chinese pretty so thoroughly. you named a bunch of names, uh, HP uh, and uh, CSC, which created DXC and mm -hmm. IBM and Fujitsu, uh, Tata, NTT. Uh, these are the big names in uh, uh, managed service. Uh, a, I'm struck by the fact that you've got good information out of the HP or the HP-CSC joint venture. Um, from a lot of other uh, providers, you got pretty standard disclaimers saying, you know, uh, nobody's information was compromised uh, uh, or they said uh, – No uh, material we, impact. Right. No material impact. We take uh, the security of our customers seriously. That's the weakest of the statements. Uh, um, do you think this is a reflection of a difference in the performance of the, uh, the HP guys or was it just that HP had gone through a merger and there were a lot more people on the street who would talk to you? I think it was just down to our ability to get the information. Uh, we also, I think, realized that the HPE case was really important in this story because they did they had multiple spinoffs. They had multiple uh, mergers that kind of occurred. DXC was a company that was a spinoff between HPE and CSC, as you mentioned. And that narrative kind of looking at infection, the mutations of those infections over time as companies were doing these business deals was really fascinating. Yeah. You know, the best way to get hacked is to do a big merger, especially yeah. if you have to combine the IT systems, and, oh, yeah. you know, because uh, the infection is going to come along with the uh, uh, with the IT system. So you're just spreading it yourself. Yeah, I think one of the best ways that this whole thing was described to me, I, I was speaking to um, a government source on this and he said, 
this strategy is kind of like the Walmart strategy. Instead of going to 10 different stores and buying different things, each of those stores that you need, you just go to one store, you just go to Walmart and you just take a shopping cart and you take whatever you want down every single aisle. And that's what it was like hacking these MSPs. So in addition to the MSPs that were that were hacked that we disclosed in our story, like, like DXC and HP and IBM, we also uh, were able to reveal a few of the secondary victims, so clients of the MSPs that the Chinese really targeted. So this is this is I, I, before you jump into yeah. that. Uh, this is a little like Willie Sutton. Uh, uh, why do they break into the MSPs? Because that's where the access is. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So who who got uh, compromised or uh, potentially compromised uh, as a result of these? The list is extremely long, and in many cases, we could not confirm um, a successful compromise with the highest degree of confidence that we would write about it. The the cases that we reveal in the story are the ones that we're obviously sure of and we had great sourcing on. And so um, in terms of those secondary victims, the clients of the MSPs, one of the big names was Ericsson, who uh, is developing 5G technology. It's the biggest competitor of Huawei. The hack occurred in 2017 in the middle of this larger geopolitical struggle between the West and East over the development of the future of the internet. Um, another one was Huntington Ingalls, which is one of the largest shipbuilders in the United States. Nuclear submarines, right? Nuclear submarines, that's right. You, you can see a common trend line with all of the victims, really, these end victims, in that they serve a geopolitical interest to China or a strategic interest to China, either in building its navy, uh, gaining commercial secrets. Uh, another company that was breached actually later became owned by a Chinese corporation, which was we found very interesting. Well, that's that, that, that has been standard practice for a while, is that uh, when you're in negotiations or thinking about negotiating to do an M&A, you, you, um, if you're a Chinese buyer, you find a way to hack into the system so that you know whether they're telling you the truth. It's like having your own document run. Sounds like a great audit. No law firm needed. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they broke into uh, a couple of um, big travel reservation systems, didn't they? Yeah. So uh, Sabre, which m many people may not know who they are, but they, they really do all of the reservation backend, the infrastructure for travel and hotel reservations online was compromised by APT-10. And we thought that, that was a particularly important victim because with that type of knowledge, with that type of access, you could learn where anyone was flying, who was potentially flying with them, if they flew with the same person multiple times, understand these temporal relationships. Right. And if, you, if you've broken into... Uh the uh, uh, phone system, you can see when they land and when they turn on their phone and uh, where they go from there. And this facilitates this, – this could facilitate human spying operations as well. This is a great tool that could be that, – that is first accessed by SIGINT, by a signals intelligence agency, but could directly facilitate and empower like a human intelligence agency, which is important because this hacking group, APT-10, uh, has been associated with China's Ministry of State Security, which is – you know, we, we know it's similar to CIA and FBI and a few of the things are all rolled into one. So um, I was struck by the number of pretty strong denials you got from those companies, uh, the, the, the end targets. Uh, most of them said uh, we are confident that we contained this or that they didn't get anything significant. Uh, um, and I, I didn't go through and you you were kind enough not to flag the ones that gave you milk toast uh, generalities. Uh, uh, did any of them have um, SEC disclosures? So this is a great question and this is something that we looked for throughout. Um, the only 
victim that we were aware of that had an, a, a disclosure was Sabre, and that was in 2016. Uh, it did not mention how they were breached or who they were breached by, but it said they had a cybersecurity incident. And so something I learned through this story is that there's a lot of wiggle room around disclosure laws, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to prove that a company knew the extent of the damage or knew whether something was stolen, what is considered material impact in these cases? How do you prove that a company knowingly did nothing about it yet knew about it? Perhaps there'll be another story down the line, but no, we we we, we did not see many of these disclosures. So, I, I was interested in something toward the end of your story where DHS knew about a lot of this, uh, as did the FBI. The FBI told people, "We found your stuff on an intermediate C two system," uh, I, and so they alerted some of the companies. Uh, but where you were watching folks use an MSP platform to break into a customer of the uh, platform, it looks as though DHS took the view that we can't make these service providers tell their customers that uh, they may have been compromised. I think I understand why they might uh, take that view, but it certainly doesn't sound uh, like the most intuitive position. I think this went beyond DHS. This was also the case with FBI and DOJ. They were working primarily with the managed service providers during this campaign. This was a very large SMEs operation that the government was very, very worried about, not just the US government, but the Brits and a number of Five Eyes partners. And because they were working with the managed service providers so closely on all of these different investigations. Ah, they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't rat them out at the same time. Perhaps perhaps that's the case. But what is clear is that they left it up to the MSPs to do the disclosure to their clients. Have they? From the best that I can tell, no. In the majority of cases, the MSP did not disclose broadly to their clients that they were having problems like this, that they were thoroughly breached by the Chinese. They're – uh, from what we heard, there was cases where they may have told a specific client if they were kind of on high alert. But the kind of thing where they would disclose to their larger customer base privately, we're having these issues, be on the lookout. That, that's not and, something and we from saw. And from a legal point of view, it's probably pretty easy to come to that conclusion. The disclosure obligations have to do with uh, personally identifiable information, which is often defined very precisely apart from the obligation to tell the Defense Department, uh, there, there are very few other obligations. And if you can say with some confidence, I have no reason to believe that these hackers uh, got in and took personally identifiable information, uh, you can probably say, I don't have an obligation. This My client won't have an obligation to disclose, and so I don't have an obligation to disclose to them uh, because they don't have an obligation. That, I assume, is the line of analysis, but I'm guessing that all of those customers would have wanted to know. I'm sure the customers would have wanted to know because we spoke with some of them. Um, And to your point, there's only two things I would add. One, what is the ability of these companies to really look for issues when they don't want to find them? And two, this this group of hackers, these were not the summer interns. These were the elite guys working for a highly resourced intelligence agency. It's highly likely you would not know what they did without having a longer conversation with each of your customers, looking at logs, hiring outside uh, consultants, some of these larger firms, doing more research. The nature of the compromises and the tactics they used indicated that you wouldn't know. Did any of the customers catch this using their internal uh, incident uh, uh, monitoring, uh, uh, traffic monitoring uh, tools? 
Yes, we we didn't get into that a ton in the story because it's already a very long story, as you mentioned. But there were cases where the downstream victims did find it. However, one interesting component to this was that the legal service agreements that these uh, end clients sign with their MSPs, a lot of times it gives right to investigation to the MSP first. So even if you yourself believe you're breached, you can't hire a third party to look into it. You need to oh. first go to your MSP for them to investigate it. Wow. So uh, all, the incentives are all if, kind if, of a little if, off. If, you, if you're listening to this, I'm guessing there are, are dozens of in-house counsel saying, uh, you know, I better go back and review my contracts because uh, you're right. Uh, you could have great uh, internal, you know, th I, there are people, and, and we talked to uh, Dick Clark uh, last week, who believe that their ability to monitor lateral movement in the network is very real and if properly applied uh, can destroy a lot of these campaigns, even very sophisticated ones. But if you're not allowed to do that or at least not allowed to act on it, uh, uh, then you're really at the mercy of somebody who's, yeah, whose interests are not quite aligned with yours. That's right. And there's a number of other things that could be at play, like non-disclosure agreements, whether these end clients are able to share techniques and, and certain indicators in malware that may be affecting another company, what sort of reputational damage it may have on the MSP when they bring in a third party. Is that more likely to cause the information to leak? Wow. Okay. Um, fascinating. And uh, with real life, uh, real world uh, implications for uh, uh, for corporate IT security. Uh, this other one, I'm less sure has, has major implications, uh, uh, but I'm struck that you uh, managed to produce a, such a completely different story uh, in the same week. Uh, this is an accusation by, I guess, Kaspersky and uh, Yandex, which is uh, Google for Russia, uh, that Western intelligence agencies using a very sophisticated uh, sort of uh, Swiss army knife uh, uh, tool for breaking into networks tried to compromise Yandex to get their authentication information and more or less failed. Is that the story? So... If you were speaking to Yandex, I think that's definitely the story they would tell you. What We spoke to people who are familiar with uh, with the specific security incident at Yandex where they um, they found malware that's typically associated with Five Eyes intelligence agencies, this platform called Region or Regan, still not sure how you pronounce it. And the hackers had gotten had successfully gotten into Yandex. They'd breached the company and they were targeting a research and development unit within the company that's involved in a number of different projects. But what they seemed to be looking at based on the sources that we talked to was user authentication mechanisms and encoding. So how does Yandex authenticate that you, when you log in, are who you say you are. Mm -hmm. And you would search for this type of information so that you'd be able to impersonate accounts. Um, yeah, break into – I assume Yandex has an email system just like yep. Google. Yeah, They have a number of services, taxi, um, email, uh, food delivery. I mean, it's a really – it's a really long line of services. I, I don't think Five Eyes is doing this so that they can get free taxi service in, uh, in Moscow. But uh, <laughs> uh, certainly to get access to people's emails, uh, it would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they got caught by essentially a uh, lateral movement uh, monitoring uh, system, it looks like. Yeah, they got caught internally by Yandex in part because some of the code for this malware was already previously known uh, a number of years ago. So there was, there was still – 
there were signatures out there. There were signatures out there. That's exactly right. So a number of years ago, after the Snowden disclosures, Kaspersky and Kaspersky Lab, a um, Russian cybersecurity firm, and also uh, a U.S. cybersecurity firm named Symantec, had found this malware and had written signatures for it, so you'd be able to detect it. And the new version that was found in Yandex, while a lot of the code was new, it still had a little bit of old code, things that could be technically detected. And so they caught it internally. Note to self, don't do that again. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not the best tradecraft. Um, But who knows, it's hard to say what the, uh, do they mean to get caught or why would they reuse something that had already been outed in the past? This is when you get into kind of the the psychology of these different espionage operations. And it, it strikes me that practically Everybody who's a source for this story wants to spin it as um, uh, Russian companies in, uh, are so good at their security that even Five Eyes can't break in. Uh, I, that the story of uh, um, uh, Five Eyes' failure, the the Kaspersky and Yandex as the heroes—that's uh, the storyline. Uh, uh, do you have reason to doubt that uh, basic narrative? Yeah, I mean, I, that's not how we wrote the story. The The story is that uh, it, it appears that a Five Eyes hacking group successfully breached the index, had access to the systems for a number of weeks. The company saying that there was no damage. Uh, it's unclear from our sources what data was stolen, if any data stolen. But I think it's an important story because it shows um, very rarely – do we get to see Western intelligence cyber espionage operations? We always hear about Russia and China, right. and in part that is because of the tradecraft and the sophistication of these but Western also agencies. Because it's, it's not so much in the interest of most of the Western companies to advertise. Wow, well, we, <laughs> we we caught NSA doing this, uh, um, but for Kaspersky, that's pretty much. That is their market now, as people who are more afraid of the Five Eyes than anybody else. Yeah, and I, what I think was interesting in this case was that we went to Semantic, uh, a U.S. firm unassociated with 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 Russia, and they said they too had found this malware earlier this year on a client. So the same hacking group had hacked one of their clients, mm-hmm. and they found this malware reappear. And this malware had disappeared for a number of years, and now it's being used again. And it's a uh, it's a very sophisticated kind of, as you as you called it, like a Swiss Army knife for espionage online. Um, so why is it still being used? Why didn't they throw it away when it was exposed the first time? These are all questions that hopefully we'll find out more in, in, in some time. All right, Chris, thanks so much for coming in. This those were two great stories. And uh, um, how are you? Enjoy- when did you move over to Reuters? It is my one year anniversary today, so I've been there for twelve months. Congratulations! Yeah, uh, you're doing great work for them, and uh, uh, you did you did great stuff at CyberScope as well. So uh, we're always glad to have you on. Thanks to Chris Bing, David Chris, Nate Jones, and Jordan Cannon for joining us. This has been episode 270 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us your interview suggestions. We're getting a lot of them, uh, and we will send you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug, which I'm going to give uh, to Jordan for his first-time appearance here, and to Chris if he wants one. Uh, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. If I get around to it, I usually tell you what stories I think we're going to cover. I didn't get around to it this week. My so- I'm, I'm going to have to apologize for that. If you like what you're hearing, please do leave us a rating of five stars uh, so that other people can find us. Uh, uh, Coming up in interviews, uh, we're going to have Glenn Reynolds talking about social media and censorship 
and what to do about it. Uh, he's the uh, uh, Instapundit uh, of Instapundit.com. We're going to have Harvey Rishikoff and Joyce Carell talking about Deliver Uncompromised and the defense supply chain. Uh, we're going to have Paul Shar and Greg Allen uh, talking about China and AI. Uh, my thanks to Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, our assistant and editor, and I'm Stuart Baker, your host and chief provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.